Thank you all uh, for being here, and good morning. Um, my name is Justin Crow. If you do not know that, I'm one of the pastors here at Mission Church, and I have the privilege um, of preaching sometimes. However, it feels like it's been forever since I've been up here. I got to be honest. With sabbatical mixed in there, and then just the schedule. Uh, so I'm excited uh, to be here this morning. I'm excited to preach God's word. However, I don't have time to really lead into that. Because we have so much to get to, and that's a totally a preacher thing to say, because every text we have so much to get to, but we really do. We have so much to get to today, so if you have your Bibles or devices with me, and I hope you do, if you don't, there should be one somewhere close by you on the chairs. That is our gift to you if you don't have a Bible, but feel free to use it while you're here, even if you do. Turn to chapter 4 of the book of Exodus. Now, if you've been with us through this journey through Exodus, we have learned a lot. And we've covered a lot. Moses has, has done a lot. He, he was supposed to die as an infant. We saw that a few weeks ago, but he was miraculously saved in an ark slash basket. If you look at the original language, Moses grew up then after being saved that way in the lap of luxury as the son of Pharaoh. Moses then grew up, saw his fellow Hebrew being attacked, killed a man. And then was found out or someone knew or someone saw it happen, whatever. And then he ran off. He ran to Midian because he thought he was going to be in trouble for killing this guy. Then he, was, he got married at some point in Midian to one of Jethro's daughters. He's been there for about 40 years. And then the last two weeks we saw God show up in a burning bush. God himself, Jesus himself incarnate in the flames of a bush that was burning but not being consumed and we see kind of a conversation between that and Moses and we kind of see that continued this week so we see God in a very unique way show up in Moses's life but in chapter 4 is where we see Moses kind of respond to God's commission now I know he said some things last week but he was basically asking questions if you look at the text he was asking God questions and I can't read the heart of Moses. You kind of can as you, as you get through chapter 4. But in that moment, they're reasonable questions. Okay, Why me, God? Why are you sending me? Why did you choose me for this mission? And if you look at Moses' history or any of our history, why would God use any of us? Why would God use Moses? But why would God use human beings, really, period, for his mission? Why doesn't he just do it himself? It's a valid question. Why me, God? But God answers him. Then, okay, I get it why you're choosing me, bush, burning bush. But who are you, really? You're sending me, but who are you? Because here's the deal. That's a reasonable question. Because if it's not Yahweh, the creator God, the great I am, the I am be, as we learned last week, then he shouldn't go. Because if someone else is sending him, it's not going to work. It's not going to do anything. So that is a valid question. Who are you? Who, why me? Who are you? God patiently answers his questions, but this week we see Moses speak more instead of asking more. He, he says some things, and that's what we're going to look at today. Now, we're not going to cover every word and every verse of chapter 4. We simply do not have the time, but we'll explain as we go. However, if you would, read with me, starting in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 17. It says, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. It became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, 
put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and he caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him, put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as, a, as God to him, and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. All right, so we see here, again, God has answered his questions, but now Moses goes on to tell him, but they won't believe me, God. Now keep in mind, he, he's talking about the Israelites here. They, your people, God, they're not going to believe that I was sent to them to tell them that they are about to be freed. Now the question is, did Moses sin here? Now in and of itself, that statement would not necessarily be sinful. In all honesty, they shouldn't believe him. Who is this guy? He left for 40 years after murdering a guy, or at least killing a guy in someone else's defense, whichever way you look at that. But he ran off. He's been gone for 40 years. He shows back up and says, God sent me here, guys, and I'm now going to be your leader. Most people probably wouldn't even remember him, but if they did remember him, what would they remember him as? A murderer? Or the guy that grew up in Pharaoh's home and then all of a sudden left and then all of a sudden came back to be their leader? Why should they believe him? And But for the grace of God, they wouldn't ever believe him. We are told, even nowadays, and we have the whole counsel of God's word to back us up, not to believe every spirit that says I was sent by God. I had a guy call me this week at Hope House, and he, in the midst of all of his ramblings, I'll call it, he says, God sent me to play this music for the masses, for the world. God gave me this music. I have to play it for the world. Now, he doesn't know that his wife had called me twice earlier in the week to tell me, come get this dude. I just hit him in the face with a baseball bat, and I've called the cops. And that's not a false story or a sermon illustration. This is true. What should I do? I, I said, call the cops. She said, okay, and we got off the phone. But this dude, God sent me. God, should I believe him? Should I say, oh, well, God sent this guy. He probably has something I really need to hear. First John 4, 11, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. We are told this, and we have God's written, full written word 
before us. But these people don't even have that. And Moses is going to show up and be like, I'm here. I've arrived. God sent me. You should follow me. You should listen to my words. They shouldn't believe him. Except, verse 3, 18. Look what it says. God has just told him in chapter 3. Go to the elders. Tell them this. And then what? Verse 3, 18. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders together, so they obviously believe him, the elders of Israel will go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Meaning when Moses shows up and tells them this, they will go, okay, we believe you. The Lord has now met with us as well because you have ushered him into our midst and we will now go to the Pharaoh. Yet Moses, the Literally, the guy, he's talking to a burning bush right now. Think about this. And he's arguing with it. Ah, no, no, no. I know you just said that they will believe me, but they won't believe me. God has said is the foundation of our faith. That's why I believe in God, because God has said I am saved. That's why I believe I'm saved. Because if I look at my day-to-day life, I don't know that I trust it every day. But God has said, God has told Moses, go, they will believe you. And Moses' response is, uh-uh. No, they won't. See, this is Moses' issue. And you'll see this play out over and over and over again. He believes God to a point. That's Moses' issue. His pride just keeps getting in his way. And I don't mean pride thinking he's high and mighty and everything. It's pride in focusing on himself and his own abilities or inabilities, as it were. Thinking he has to do something. This is what sent him to Midian to start with. God sent me to save these people. I better kill that dude. Instead of trying to mediate it some other way, I have to step in and do something. So I'm going to kill him. He is constantly getting in his own way. We see this here in the multitude of excuses. We see this when he throws the Ten Commandments down. We see this when Moses strikes the rock when he was told not to strike the rock to get water out of it. That's what keeps him literally from being able to go to the promised land. Moses has a severe pride problem. He has a calling distortion. He knows he's called. He knows God is calling him to do something. But he constantly focuses on himself. But I can't do it. I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not this enough. Instead of focusing on the one who is sending him. And that is one message for all of us here. This is not the main point. This isn't even a point you have to write down. Just remember it. God has a calling on your life as well. Every one of you who calls yourself a Christian. God has a calling on your life. Now it may not be to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. As a matter of fact, it's definitely not that, okay? But it's something. It may be leading your family out of the bondage of sin because they're not believers with you. It may be leading your friends or your coworkers out of the bondage of sin by sharing the gospel with them and saying, you don't have to follow me, but follow the Jesus of this message. Follow the Jesus of this gospel. If you are a believer in this room or listening online today, God has a calling on your life. He has called you into ministry. Both are enormous callings, leading the Israelites out of Egypt, but also leading a dead heart and trying to cajole it to believe the gospel. God does that. The Holy Spirit does that. But both are enormous callings, but both are backed by an enormous God who promises it will accomplish his purposes. And this is what Moses is failing to see. This is what Moses is, is not getting at this point. And we see it pop up immediately. Right here, God says, throw down your staff. Okay? 
throws it down, it becomes a snake. This is not a magic staff. This was not Gandalf's staff. This was no one. This is just a staff, okay? It's a stick. He's probably carried this thing for years. It's probably worn down and smooth where his hand is. It's just a stick. He throws it down. God makes it a literal snake. So literal that Moses runs from it, which is exactly what you do with snakes. Amen? Okay, this is what you do. This is how you know the story of Exodus is not about me, because it would have been over in chapter 4. And then he threw down the staff, and then he ran away. The end. That's it. That's the end of the story of Justin is Moses, okay? That's, but he runs away, but look at what happens. Moses runs away. God says, pick it up. Come back. Pick up the snake. And Moses does it. Seems obedient, right? Not if you know Hebrew. Here's the, here's the thing. Moses' pride is even in the way here. His lack of trust of God is here. In the original language, God uses the word, grab it. Firmly grasp that snake. Confidently bend down, snatch it up. Have you seen those videos where people snatch them up and they snap them like a whip? And that's what every snake should be done to every snake, okay? But they snap it like a whip, their head explodes or something. I'm never going to know if it works because I'm just running instead. But that's what God is saying. Pick it up. Be confident. Grab it. The word Moses is used in the next sentence where it says, and Moses caught the snake. That word means to snatch at or grab cautiously, which again is how I would do it. But he's like, eh, I, don't, I don't really want to. And he grabs it. Okay? That's the noise I would make too. Right? But you see here, even in that, even the original language, Moses is admitting here, God told me to do this, and I kind of did it. God told me to confidently do it, but I timidly did it. I accomplished it, and it still worked. But even here, Moses is too busy learning, leaning on his own abilities. He's too busy focusing on him, what he can do. He's scared of the snake. God's not. That's why God tells him to grab it like that. But this is just another method of God saying, look what I can do with a stick. You don't think I can do more with you, a man? You don't think I can do more with you, a group of Israelites, probably millions of people at this point? You don't think I can do more than that? Confidently go. This is what Jesus tells his disciples when he's about to leave. You're going to go do more than even I could do because you're going to spread throughout the whole world. I'm a man right now. This is Jesus talking. I'm a man right now in one place in time. You will spread. You will go do more. And yet we look at that and go, why me, God? Or, no, you can't, God. They won't believe me, God. This is, he tells us to go boldly, and we go cautiously, if we go at all. So God gives Moses these signs. He says, this will prove to the people that I am who I say I am, and that you are from me, and I am with you. I can take an ordinary staff. I can turn it into a literal breathing snake. I can take a good, healthy hand and change the biology of it immediately into a disease that would cause people to recoil, to step back, to go, whoa. And then I can change it back just as quickly. I can take usable water that's good for something, and I can change it into blood that's not good for anything, that you can't drink, you can't do anything with. I can do these things because I am the God of creation. I created those things so I can manipulate them how I want, and that includes you, Moses. That includes the people that hear you, Moses. That includes Pharaoh, Moses. You can almost see, if you are a visual person, 
Moses' facial expression almost changing. Like, oh, he answered me, he got me again. Okay? Instead of looking at his, and, and he caught looking at his own abilities, and God is saying, don't look at those. Don't look at your inabilities. But then, Moses is like, I got another one. I, got, I don't be talking that good, God. That, that's, that's my paraphrase, it's not in there. But that's what Moses said. I don't, I don't be good at that talking stuff. God, I can't do it. Again, looking at his own abilities, and God doesn't seem to argue with him. No, no, Moses, you're awesome. You're a great speaker, dude. He, he later on pretty much admits, no, Moses, you are pretty terrible. Aaron's good. We'll send him. But it was still sinful because Moses is still looking. I don't speak well. I am not eloquent. I can't do this, God. And he's again failing to remember God's promise from chapter 3. You can go there and say, blah, blah, blah. These people are going to believe you, and they will go with you to Pharaoh. But Moses' pride gets in the way of what God is trying to get him to see. But God answers him. So far, we have not heard that God is angry with him. God answers him. He reassures him that not only, Moses, are you not going by yourself... I am going with you. I will always be with you. I am leading you. This is verse 12. But he also reminds them, look, I made your mouth just like I made that stick. Just like I made the water that you're going to turn into blood. Just like your hand that I can turn into leprosy. I made your mouth. I made their ears. If, if someone is deaf, it's because I made them that way. If someone is mute, it's because I made them that way. He is saying here, your weaknesses are not my weaknesses. I don't have to rely on what you are weak in and hope I can mutter through it. God is saying, I will overcome your weaknesses. I made you that way on purpose so that I receive the glory. God intends to get glory out of this situation by using the weaknesses of man so that they have no reason to boast. This is the same thing he does with us. He uses our weaknesses. 2 Corinthians 12, it says, His grace is sufficient because His power is made perfect in our weaknesses. It is used for His glory. So God, again, thwarts Moses' silly excuses of, I can't speak well. All right, this is a, a side note, and I almost didn't put this in here because it seems extremely self-serving. But these may not be the exact same excuses or the same thoughts that your pastors have, but please pray for your pastors. Yes, I know I'm included in that. But especially lead pastors, so we all know what we're talking about, Eric, but like, if you go to a different church, pray for your lead pastors. Because these are the things that we think. Why me? Why, why would you use me? Why, I don't do this well. I'm not good at this. I'm not this. Are you sure it's me? Are, are you sure it's Justin Crow? Like, you sure, like, there's a lot of Justins in the world. Are you sure it's not one of the other ones? Just pray for your pastors. And again, I know that seems self-serving, but we struggle with this all the time. And it, sometimes it's because we don't trust God enough. And sometimes it's just... The nature of the beast, okay? Soapbox ended. All right, verse 13. The truth really comes out here, okay? Moses has been making these excuses. I don't speak well. Are you sure it's me? Are you sure it's you, God? All of these things. Then what does he say? God, just send someone else. Like, I just don't want to do it, all right? It seems like a lot of hard work. I don't, I just don't want to do it, all right? I, I like my life here in Midian. I'm married. I got some kids. I got a farm or whatever I'm doing. All right, I'm Trevor Ayersing it out here. Just leave me alone. Leave me alone and stop talking to me. And don't send me. Send someone else. 
This seems to be where God's patience runs out. It says, then God's anger was kindled against Moses. I don't know if God was angry a little bit before and now it's just erupting, or if God was just completely patient. Because I would say the other excuses were sinful because God knows the heart, and it seems Moses' heart was always leading to this point. It was always leading to just send someone else. I'm going to use all these excuses so it seems justifiable that I just do not want to go. But God seemingly handles doubt well in Scripture. Read Psalms. There's doubts all over that thing. There's questions all over Psalms. And God doesn't seem to get mad at doubt. Doubt seems to be okay. Questions, true questions. Why, God? Why are you doing this? Why did you make me this way? Why did you make this person this way? Why is the world this way? The answer is because I, I want it to be. Or I'm doing something here that you may not be able to see. But we can ask God revealed, what are you doing? I would like to know. And he seems to be okay with that. Disobedience, on the other hand, never seems to be met well from God. God never seems to react in a positive manner. If there's an example in Scripture, please show me, where God's like, you know what, you're disobedient, but that's okay. I don't see it. Doubts, okay. Disobedience, not okay. One underlying message here is that God will bear with you through your doubts and your questions. Bring them to him. But once he's made it clear that he's calling you to this, or once he's made it clear that, that you are the one he's talking to, or that he is the one doing the talking, or whatever, we should, we should go do that. Doubts seem to be handled well, but disobedience seems to kindle the anger of God. Why me, God? Because I've called you Moses, or so-and-so, so-and-so, whoever. Yeah, but who are you? I'm Yahweh, the one and only God, and I'm sending you out. I'm doing a thing in your life. Okay. But they won't believe me. Tell them I sent you. Use, your, use my word. Don't speak your words. Speak my words. But I, but I don't speak that well. My word will speak for you. I will go with you. Yeah, I just don't want to go. Um, hello? Excuse me? What? What was that? See, he doesn't respond well to disobedience. Moses was called here to be a double mediator for God. Meaning, he was to speak God's words first to the Israelites and then to Pharaoh. Okay, Take that. Some people are going to go with him and go to Pharaoh. He is the mediator of the Almighty God. He is to speak for God in this instance because God has sent him. So he is called to be mediator. And he was promised that it would work. That's the key here. And the command for us now in 2021 is the same. Go. Will all of them believe you? No. Will, will any of them technically believe you? No. But I've called some. Some will believe me. Some will believe my word. So we go boldly. Because here's the thing. Moses was called to the Israelites to reassure them that God had sent him to lead them out, right? Then God was to go to Pharaoh and say, hey, dude, you're not doing this so well. You might want to repent and change. You know what that's called? Discipleship, reassuring God's people that God is with them, that God loves them, that God cares for them, that yes, God will rebuke their sin, but ultimately will not cut you off from the covenant he has made with you because he loves you and he is always going to preserve you if you are God's people. And then the other one is called evangelism. Hey, dude, that's not under the covenant I just referenced. Hey, 
gal that's un- not under the covenant, that's not under the blood of Jesus, you might want to repent. Not might. You do. You should repent. You should turn to Jesus. This is what Moses was sent to do. This is what we were sent to do. We are called God's ambassadors. Another word for that? Mediators. We are to speak God's words to the people, whether they be believers or non-believers. And we go boldly proclaim that God is God, that God has saved us, that God is lovingly and mercifully calling unsaved people unto himself to be saved. However, that's not the major lesson here. One of the lessons you will always get here at Mission Church is go share the gospel. Every week we're going to say something to that effect somewhere in the sermon. But here, this text, while that is one of the lessons, this text simply points us to Jesus. It points us, it's a beeline right to Jesus. You see here, the, the Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if God was speaking through a mediator then, why would he change that and not be speaking through a mediator now? God has always worked through mediators. Prophets, that's what Moses was doing, right? Speaking God's words. Prophets were to speak for God, to proclaim the words of God to both God's people and those who weren't, calling them to repent. Kings were charged to lead the people to follow God's laws, to to follow them themselves, but also to lead people to follow them, and then to carry out justice on earth. Some were good, some were bad, none were perfect. Then you have priests. They served as those who would make atonement for the sins of the people by offering sacrifices, which is exactly what Moses was going to Pharaoh to ask them to do. Hey, can, our, can these people exit out of here and go worship God by sacrificing to him because that's what he's called us to do. Can we go? We'll get to all of that in a few weeks. But priests were called, but here's the thing is, what did they have to do before they offer your sacrifices? Their, their own sins had to be atoned for, so they had to offer a sacrifice for themselves, then go and offer a sacrifice for you. We see here Moses being called to fill the role of prophet, but reluctantly doing so. He finally does it, hence the rest of Exodus. But he reluctantly does it. You see here, he doesn't really want to be doing it. What we see in Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all of these roles. Unlike the prophets, priests, and kings of old, what we have in Jesus is a prophet who was not reluctant to speak for God, but who left the throne room of God to bring forth that message to us. And then for the joy set before him would endure the cross. We have a king in Jesus who rules perfectly, not only perfectly leading by example, but he doesn't just stop there. He also carries out God's justice in both being the just and the justifier to keep up God's holy law. And then he is a priest who was, was, instead of offering something else, he was the once-for-all sacrifice so that no more payment for sin had to be made. But he didn't have to make one for himself. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might then become the righteousness of Christ. This is the takeaway from this section. Do not look to Moses. Do not look to David. Don't look to Isaiah. Don't look to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Don't look to Justin Crow, Eric Baker, John Piper, you name it. Look to Jesus. He is the only one, the only true mediator who can save you to the uttermost. And that would be a really great ending to a sermon. Except we're just smack dab in the middle of this one, okay? Look to Jesus. So we're going to trudge on, but keep that in mind as we move forward. All right, Exodus 4. 
Now, verses 18 through 23, I don't want to use the word skip because that sounds sacrilegious to me, okay? We're not skipping those. We're just not preaching them today. Now, the reason for that is one of the main points here is in verse uh, 21, I will harden the heart of Pharaoh. This is God speaking to Moses. You're going to go. I'm hardening his heart as we speak. I'm doing it. I'm doing a work. You'll see what happens, okay? The reason we're whatever the word for skipping is, is because the plagues talk about this over and over and over again. And we're going to get to the plagues in just a few weeks. And it, here's the key, though. I want you to remember this moment. Because over and over in the plagues, it says, but God hardened his heart, Pharaoh's. God hardened Pharaoh's heart as he told Moses he would do. Because it points back to this verse right here. It is God doing the hardening most of the, now every once in a while it does say Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Okay, fine. But when God does it, it points us back to this verse because God had already promised that that's exactly what he was going to do in order to get glory out of the situation. All right, back to the text. Let's read, and I, there may be a slide, I don't know, I didn't ever get confirmation. There, there should be a slide for this text. This is a fun one, guys. This is what I thought I was preaching and then we expanded it. It's great. Verses 24 through 26. Buckle up. All right. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. First, Never mind, I'm going to avoid the awkward moment from 10 years ago, circumcision joke. But if y'all know that story, you can go ahead and laugh, because it was awkward. And it's still awkward even now, thinking about it. All right, what the heck is, is going on here? All of a sudden, Moses has agreed to go, okay? He's even asked his father-in-law to let him take his daughter with him to go. So he's, he's done all the things. He's going. And then all of a sudden... Out of seemingly nowhere, God, uh, God's putting somebody to death here, and then somebody does a circumcision, and then God doesn't put them to death. Come to Jesus, all right? Here's the deal. If I were teaching this in a class, we would go so much farther in depth than we're going to go today. One, due to we're not teaching, and two, due to time. However, in MCs, it, I don't know about the other MCs, we're probably going to discuss this in mind, just fair warning. But, because I've done a lot of research, and it is an incredibly interesting topic. But anyway, I also want to admit I'm not the smartest person even in this room, much less in the world. And some of the smartest theologians in the world describe this paragraph as the most enigmatic paragraph in all of Scripture. Because we don't know exactly what some of these things or where they came from or any of that. Okay? There's my preface. All right. So the first question, if you can put that verse back up there. Is that okay? The first question then is who is him? At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Now, most theologians, an overwhelming majority, say that's Moses. Okay? There is a slim minority that would say, no, that's Gershom, his oldest son. That is going to be put to death. Now, if our teaching class, this is where we would dive deeper in. And if you have questions after this and you want to talk about it here and not wait till Wednesday, by all means, go ahead. I will be glad to talk about it. 
But here's the thing. is It could be either one. Now, most, even translations that you're holding in your hand are going to basically imply that it's Moses. And we'll see that here in a moment. But you see already, this is already confusing. This is already a passage that there can be some contention in. And I want to contend to you that it is extremely full of the gospel when we get to the bottom of it. And that's what we'll get to today. But one thing is for certain. Someone is about to die. God is seeking to kill someone. Very clear says that. Then Zipporah, again, a woman saves the day. Y'all can clap, cheer, whatever you want to do. But Zipporah saves the day. Moses' wife takes a flint knife, quickly performs the circumcision on her son, who most assuredly was not a small child. I don't know how old he was, but he was not an infant. Let that sink in. All right. The question then is if he wasn't an infant, why wasn't he circumcised? And my answer is, I don't know. I don't know. But we do know that Zipporah seemed to jump into action that quick, right? There is no prelude to this. There's no Zipporah tried anointment, and then Zipporah tried some essential oils, and then Zipporah tried Zija, and then Zipporah did this, that, or the other. None of those things are in there, all right? Not that those are bad. got to say all that, right? But she jumped in, and immediately she knew what to do. She took the flint knife out, foreskin off, done. Then she touches the feet of someone, again, we don't even know if it was really their actual feet or if that was a different word. We'll get into that some other time, I guess. We also don't know whose feet she touched. Now, in your translation, it's going to say Moses there. She touched the feet of Moses. But in your translation, there should also be a little number beside Moses that says, hey, look at the bottom of the page. And what does the original language say? Him. She touched the feet of him and then said this bridegroom thing I don't know who the next people to get married in here but if you don't put bridegroom of blood in your in your vows like I'm just not going to marry you so just letting you know it's got to be in there seems very romantic to me you're a bridegroom of blood to me no it doesn't all right we don't really know where that comes from either but let's let's break all of this down really really quickly the reason why Moses is transposed into the text there instead of him by 95 percent of theologians is because of this term, a bridegroom of blood to me. If she's saying bridegroom, it seems like she's probably talking to who she's married to, correct? Here's the deal. In the original language, that word, bridegroom, or bridegroom of blood, sorry, is actually a covenant relationship that is not by blood. Okay? It's used earlier in Exodus to explain father-in-law. So the same word is used as father meaning we're not blood-related here. But it's as if we are. Brother from another mother. That's how I can best describe it today. Right? You say that to people that we, we are, we're not born in the same house, but we tight. We are close. We are covenant relationship. I'm not going anywhere. So when Zipporah says this, she is saying to someone, either Moses or Gershom, now that you are circumcised, we are in a covenant relationship that is not only because we're physically related. That is what she is saying there by saying bridegroom of blood. Now, we still don't know if that term is a Midianite term that they always said. There's lots of questions around that, but that's what she is saying in the original language. So, when Zipporah says this to someone, either Moses or Gershom, that's how we know the covenant has been completed. Then the Bible tells us, this is back to what we know as a fact, 
The Bible tells us that God, whoever he was seeking to kill, he leaves them alone. He's done. He's not going to kill that whoever anymore because of what Zipporah has done. He was satisfied with this sacrifice. He was satisfied with the spilling of blood. Why was this the response? Why did God accept this sacrifice? To know that, turn, well, you don't have to turn. Genesis chapter 17, 10 through 14, it says this. This is the establishment of the Abrahamic covenant. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Here's the key. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God does not take this lightly. There's even signs in the New Testament that this is more important than the Sabbath to the Israelites. Jesus heals a dude on the Sabbath. And they're like, oh, hey, whoa, 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 what are you doing? And his response to them is, if I had circumcised them because it was the eighth day of his life, y'all wouldn't be saying anything. Meaning the Israelites make an exception for the work they can do for that. It's a big deal. This is not something God's like, yeah, do it if you want to. But you don't have to. That's kind of how we are in America. And I'm, again, we don't go by this covenant, so you do whatever you want. But... That's not the discussion here for God. God does not take this lightly. A male who is not circumcised is to be cut off from his people. He's no longer under the covenant. He's no longer God's people. So after all this, Moses is going to tell a group of people, hey, you're not under the covenant of God and God's going to kill your firstborn son because they're not under the covenant. All the while... Up until this point right here, his son isn't under the covenant. That is, again, is it Moses, is it Gershom? This is where some of the understanding gets mixed or gets muddled, okay? Don't focus on that. But remember, he was living in Midian. Midianites did not circumcise their people on the eighth day. They waited till they were almost married, which I'm like, really? That's the time you choose to perform this surgery? Like, you're about to get married and that? No, thank you. Just get it over with on the eighth day. But anyway... It is speculated then, we're getting to facts, I promise, we're almost done. It is speculated then that this is why Zipporah snapped into action. God said, I'm going to kill somebody, whoever. And she's like, oh no you ain't, because I know exactly, I know exactly why you're going to kill them. I know how to assuage this wrath. I know. It's almost, almost as if her and Moses had had this conversation. Like Moses had been saying Gershom's whole life, babe, we might need to circumcise him because God has told us to. And I am God's, even before he's called to go back to Egypt, I am God's person. I am a Hebrew. This is what we do. And it seems that Zipporah may have been like, nah, I don't know. Let's, let's hold back. And up until this point, who has won? Same person that wins every argument. The wife. Okay? The wife won. Because he wasn't circumcised. We know that for a fact because it tells us. We also know, mothers, you can answer this if you want to, if you're against circumcision for whatever reason, but God comes along and says, well, I'm going to kill your son if you don't, you probably take out the knife yourself too. Jump into action. Never mind. I'm not against it anymore. I want to keep my kid. I want to keep my son alive. 
So she jumps into action. This could be the answer. The text does not say that. We do know the Midianite culture. We do know the Israelite culture were not the same. But we don't know that that was the argument, but it seems to be because she jumped into action and do, did this. We do know, let's go through the facts, God was seeking to kill someone. We do know that the act of circumcision took away that wrath and turned it away. However, many people get a little uncomfortable here. Why was he going to kill anybody? Why was God showing up out of the blue? Because it kind of does, I'll be honest with you, out of the blue in this text. If it, was, if it was at verse 14, I'd be like, well, God was angry. <laughs> the anger of God was kindled against Moses, and he tried to kill him. I would kind of get that. But Moses agreed to go now. He's on his way at a lodging place, on the way to do what God has told him to do. Then, out of nowhere, God's like, I'm going to kill somebody. But either way, we get uncomfortable. Well, that doesn't seem right. God, God's either going to kill his messenger or the son of his messenger. And I want to, as lovingly as possible, tell you, it's not right that he doesn't kill him. Now, I'm not saying God did something wrong. That's not what I mean. Moses deserved to die here. Gershom deserved to die here. Zipporah deserved to die here. You know why? Because they're sinners. We've just spent two weeks talking about the holiness of God. He is supremely holy. You can't even wear shoes on the ground around the flames of his presence. I just moved off camera. You can't, you have to take your shoes off. He's so holy. And he told them in Genesis, circumcise your kids or they're not my people. And Moses said, mm, maybe not. Moses is getting ready to go proclaim salvation and freedom to God's covenant people. All the while he's not upholding the very covenant he is going to proclaim is the reason why they're being killed. It's hypocrisy at its highest level. And here's what I see in this text. With all the questions, and again, we'll get into those at MCs. We have a warning and a hope. Here's the warning. God's holiness cannot and will not make room for half-hearted devotion or nominal commitment. Even from Moses. So where does that leave you or me? There is no room in God's holiness for half-hearted devotion. It seems here that Moses had kind of somehow mixed and mingled Midianite and Israelite culture. Some of this, some of that, I like this, I don't like that. And God is saying, no, 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 no. It is all or nothing. If you want to do half Midianite, then just go be all Midianite. Because you're not going to be halfway under my covenant. One of the greatest movies ever made in the history of movies is Gladiator starring Russell Crowe. And if you don't agree with that, you're wrong. That's all I can say. Is it's one of the greatest, I didn't say the greatest, but it's one of the greatest movies of all time. There's a scene in that where Uncle Russ, that's right, that's what I call him, because his last name's Crow. Y'all didn't, Crow, Crow, Uncle Russ, nobody cares. Okay, Uncle Russ and one of the senators are talking in the dungeon. Uncle Russ is in chains. And they're talking about returning Rome to be a republic instead of a dictatorship under the emperor, okay? The senator's making a bunch of excuses, which sounds familiar in this text. And Russell Crowe, gladiator, Maximus Decimus Meridius, looks at him with a cold look on his face, and he says, the time for talk and half measures is over. And this is what God is saying to Moses here. 
I'm sending you to my people, but you ain't going to halfway be in it. You're not going to talk your way through it. You're not going to halfway do it and half measure your way. Well, I'm mostly in, I'm mostly out. No, no, no. You are going to do it. The time for talk and half measures is over. And here's the lesson for all of you in here. God is not satisfied with your talk, with your altar call conversion 10 years ago and nothing changed at all, with your church camp confession of faith when you were 11, but nothing has changed at all. God is not impressed with your church attendance, even if you're here every week. God is not impressed with your church membership. God is not impressed that you tithe more than anybody else or less than anybody else. God is an all or nothing God, and we must treat him as such. You see, God's wrath is deservedly upon everyone. We are all sinners, and God's wrath cannot and should, or can and should be pointed at us at all times. We should all be put to death at a lodging place on the way, no matter where you're going. But just as circumcision saved whoever it was in this text, the very same will save you now. So we got flint knives sharpened in the back. If you're not, never mind. Circumcision now, though, is not of the flesh. It is of the heart. Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Circumcision here saves Blood was spilled because blood was required. Hebrews 9, 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Blood is always required because God's holiness demands the utmost payment, the highest payment, the most payment. You see this in the killing of animals to kill, cover Adam and Eve's sin in Genesis. You see this when Abraham took Isaac up to kill him, but instead, it's not like God just sent him back down the mountain. They still killed an animal, okay? You see this in the Passover in just a few weeks. You see this with priests offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. It's like a never-ending pool of blood leaving the temple. And then most notably, you see this at the cross of Christ, which is exactly where this text is pointing us. This is the hope found after the warning. It doesn't end with, God wanted to kill somebody. They deserved to die, so he did it. The end. We're done. No, no, no. It tells us that blood was spilled and then God left him alone. It tells us that, yes, all sin, no matter how small we may deem it, it must be paid for. Blood is required. But here's the hope that Moses should have had. This is the hope we find in a time way before Jesus came one day. One day, one is coming who will spill his blood. And then there will be no need for any more spilling of blood for sin, ever. Ever again. It will cover a multitude of sins. Jesus is now our mediator to the Father. His blood speaks on our behalf. Hebrews 12, 24. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. A drop a droplet of this blood is enough to cover your sins, our sins, everyone's sins in the world because it is the precious blood of Jesus. This is why the old hymn can state there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood 
lose all, all their guilty stains. It's a never-ending fountain. All their guilty stains purchased by the blood of the Lamb. So here's your application from today's text, and then I'm done. Most of the time, people preach things like David and Goliath or any, you just pick somebody that you know in the Bible. And at the end, they're like, here's your application. Be like David. Fight them giants. It's awesome. You'll win. Don't listen to those people, by the way. Here's my advice. Here's my application. Don't be like Moses. Don't run to Moses. Don't look at Moses. Yeah, he ended up going. Yes, God's purposes got accomplished. But man, he had a bunch of struggles. Don't be like Moses. Flee to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Sprint as fast as you can get there to Jesus. Run to the perfect pro prophet, priest, and king who died for you. The perfect mediator. Be covered in his blood. Whether you're an Egyptian or an Israelite in this room today. If you're an Egyptian sinner, non-believer, don't even know if I buy into all this Jesus stuff. Run to Jesus for salvation today. Allow his blood to cover you. To cover your sins, past, present, and future. So he can speak on your behalf. He can become your mediator. And then you can experience true freedom far greater than the Israelites escaping from the Egyptians. Tell him you're a sinner. Beg for forgiveness. And if you truly mean it in your heart, he will do it. He's not going to turn you away. If you're an Israelite, a believer in this room, a saved Christian, I don't, I'm not calling you to doubt that today. But I am calling you to run to Jesus as fast as you can. Ask him to expose in your life anywhere that you have a half-hearted devotion to him. Because your life may not be marked by half-hearted devotion, but this part might be. Your wallet might be. Your time spent might be. Your thought life might be. Your actions might be. Whatever. Ask him to give you a life marked in all avenues of life with wholehearted devotion to him. Sprint as fast as you can to him, to the cross, so that you can feel the weight of the words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And let those words wash over you today. If you are a believer in this room, let them comfort you. Let them convict you. Let them rebuke you. But ultimately, find your rest in them. It is Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith, who will also preserve you until the end. He will save you just as he promised to save the Israelites, except this time he will use a perfect mediator instead of a fallible one in Moses. Let's pray. You're using fallible people or I would not be standing here today. Thank you for trusting your purpose and your mission to imperfect people. Not because you trust us so much, but because you trust yourself so much. You have promised and you will accomplish. Your word will not return void. The gates of hell will not prevail against your church. May we rest in that today. May we rest in the perfect mediation of the blood of Christ today. Convict us. Save us if we are not saved in this room. Sanctify as only you can by your spirit and for your glory. And it's in Christ's name. Amen.